We're in the third part of a three-part series here on something that we talk about all the time at our church. We always we talk about this, that everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible when God is involved. Anything is possible. So we're on the third one, and we're going to look at this scripture here. And uh, um, this is from the book of Mark, and I, I want to read this so you can follow along. It's a little bit of a long passage, but this is, this is a great, wonderful passage of of showing what God can do in people's lives. So if you have your, your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 9. If you have your phones, you can look there. Beginning with verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, oh, let me just say that they're coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration. They had this great mountaintop experience. Now real life butts in. When they came, down, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. If, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you out, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and stood up. So we've been thinking, we've been thinking over the past couple of weeks as a part of the body of Christ, as a body of believers who are committed to reaching the world, reaching the world, and, and, and for us, well, how does that look? Well, we, we reach in our neighborhood. We have outreach, and we have ways we get involved in our area. Thrive is, is a great one. And then we move out more, and then we move, hopefully, and at times, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We want to reach the world. And this is the foundation that these three phrases that we use so much is on. So we've been thinking about this. What kind of church are we? What kind of church does Jesus want us to be? Because Jesus wants it to be an amazing community, much more than a religious community. And when Jesus came, he turned it into a community, community where everybody was welcome. Now, it had been mostly Israel, but now with Jesus, God's intent for every human being was to reach them, to find out they matter to God and that, that life with God could be realized in their life. And we looked at how in human terms we divide this world up. We divide the world up into us, us versus them. There's the people that we are like, the people that we do like, the people we feel most comfortable with, and then there's these other people. And I don't like them, and I don't feel comfortable with them, and I don't feel like I should, I just, it just doesn't feel right for me. And so it's, it's us and them. And unfortunately, churches can do that. 
Churches can do that in the way, in, in the, in the way they, they, they set up rules, in the way they do church, they can do that. And I'm not being hypercritical here because I know how that can, but one of the things that we do, if you, if you are a guest here and you fill out one of those cards, we're going to send you a letter. You're going to get a $5 Starbucks card, or if you're local, you're going to get a $5 Canvas card. And, and then you're just going to get a little uh, uh, postcard, and we're going to ask you, what was your first impression? What did you like the most? What did you like the least? And I just want to tell you, if you put under like the least, the guy who stood up front and talked, that card goes straight to the trash. I just want you to know that. Don't need those bad vibes in my life right now. No. No. Why? Why do we do that? Because we want to know what people... Because here's the thing, you know, if after you go for, to church for a while, you get used to it. You know, you know the rhythms. You know how things work. But oftentimes, we, we can forget what it's like for someone who doesn't know that. And then how can we meet them and, and, and meet those needs? And we have taken steps over the years because of re- replies that we've gotten from people suggesting things. And so we divide the world up into us versus them. We do not want to seem like an exclusive place where people would feel uncomfortable to walk into. We do not want that to be here. And we like the people, typically, this is human nature. We like the people that are like us, and we're suspicious of the people who are not like us. And God never does that, because God made everybody, and God loves everybody. And Jesus died for the whole human race. And God does not look out on the planet and say there's an us and a them there. He just sees everybody as us. He wants everybody to be us. So as a church, we want this to be a place where everybody is welcome, no matter your background, your color, your ethnicity, your creed, whatever. We want people to know they're welcome here. We don't care what your baggage is. We don't care what you're bringing with you. This is a place where we want to greet each other. We want to, we want to show by our actions, our attitudes, our faces that everybody is welcome. And this is, also a, this is also a community where we want people to be truthful because we understand that nobody is perfect. And churches can get really goofed up on that. And they can start following God and start looking like, oh, well, we're, we're better than those people. We're not like those people. And they start the us versus them all over again. And if you notice in the Gospels, Jesus, he talks a lot, oftentimes to really religious people, and tells them they're worse off than the people they look down upon. He sees a centurion, a Roman, a hated oppressor, and he says, I've never seen faith like this man in all of Israel. In all of Israel, no one has faith like that man. A man that everyone else in Israel would say, well, he's not a believer. And Jesus went, we talked about this, Jesus went to Matthew the tax collector, a traitor to his people, and said, I want you as one of my disciples, you, I pick you, I choose you. I want you to know God chooses you. He picks you. You are the one he wants. It's not like he looks at me and he goes, wow, Bob is a mess, but I promised I'd love him. Oh, gosh, I'm going to do it. No, he goes, I'm crazy about him. I love him. I want him on my team. God wants you. So nobody's perfect. We all got to be willing to admit that. We all got to be willing to let down the mask and begin to be honest in front of others. 
And now we're going to talk about the fact that anything is possible. If God is involved, anything is possible. Because God brings the power to the table that can change us. We don't have that power. He has that power. How do we get it? How can real lasting change happen in our lives? How can we get that power? Paul says that I may know him. He talks about the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering. He says, I, just, I want to keep knowing God. Um, when my wife and I were first married, my parents, we'd go visit my parents, and just for a while, they, uh, they lived on a river. And so my dad had this small bass boat with a little 50-horsepower Johnson motor. And I got this idea one time. I asked him, I said, would you get water skis? I, I like to water ski. And he said, sure. Yeah, sure. So he found two used old wood water skis. I mean, they were like ancient. And, uh, and so we found that if, uh, if, and this is illegal, if only one person was in the boat, the, the motor was strong enough for my wife or I to get up and water ski on two skis. It's a little dangerous that the driver of the boat is also the person, you know, because every once in a while you look back and go, Where, where'd she go? You know, and then you kind of circle around and start looking for a head bobbing. Um, and then I got this idea, well, I've slalomed before. I want to slalom. And so, uh, you know, if you know anything about that, with, you get in on that one ski and the boat starts pulling you. And if it's a boat with a smaller motor, like a 50-horsepower Johnson, it just goes, and you just drag through the water and you never get up. And so I would do this thing where I would get up on two skis, and then one time I'd slide over by the riverbank, drop a ski, slip my foot in the back, and then I could slalom. That happens. That's not, nothing unusual. And uh, then you just come back and look for the ski after you're done slaloming. And so I just I told my dad, I said, I wish this boat had more power. I wish I had more power. It would be so much more fun because if I, if I cut hard and went wide, I would drag the tail of the boat with me because I was stronger than the boat, <laughs> heavier than the boat. So I was doing youth work at the time, and there was this loose coalition of youth workers up and down the East Coast, and, and we would come together for this huge summer camp where it was, it was the summer camp every kid would dream of. There was water skiing, barefoot skiing, there was skateboarding, there was bikes, there was karate, there was, it was just like everything in the whole world you could imagine. And a couple of the boats they had were from professional water skiers that would lend them to them. And so they said, Bob, you, you, you want to go skiing? And, and there's another guy, he says, you want to go skiing? And we're like, yeah, man, that would be so fun. And uh, I said, he said, well, we'll take you both at the same time. And I said, really? Really? Both at the same time? I said, can I slalom? Yeah, sure. Will it be strong enough to pull us both out of the water? And, and the guy's talking to me, and the boat driver owner's there, and he looks at me and goes, what? And I just, I, I said, what? He goes, this boat, we, we pulled 12 skiers at once on this boat. I'm going to pull you. And I was like, yes, power. Now we're talking about power. And I get in the water, and I'm on, my, in, on the slalom ski, and, other, and I mean, it was like, and the boat just jerked me up out of the water. And the guy in the back who's going, you guys want to go faster? And I'm like, Kee. and the guy next to me, significantly dumber than me, he's like, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, whoa. And so 
I'm getting a little scared. And the guy at the back's going, 40. And I'm like, like that. And the other guy's like, yeah, yeah. And so we start this idea of 45. And it's just, <laughs> my hands are getting sore. And they're going, weave. And I'm like, no, I'll just do this. Like that, 55. All of a sudden he goes, 60. And I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to do something to get them because it's 60 miles an hour. And then he just goes, we're going on a turn. And we started, if you know anything about physics, <laughs> we start turning and I am cutting as hard as I can just to stay in the wake and it's leaking me out. And I go over the wake and I start flying around the corner and a little bit up ahead, a boat goes in front of us and I'm looking at their wake. So I let go of the rope first to try to start decreasing speed and I hit the first bump of that wake and I mean it was like, ah. And for like a millisecond, this is cool. But if you've ever hit in water, it's hitting. Hit water at 60 miles an hour. It's much like a brick. It's very similar. You just go boink, and you spin, and you go boink, and it, you actually make that weird boink noise. And, and then you just flail around, and it knocked the breath out of me. And uh, so they come back, and they're getting us, and we're clambering in. I'm like, man, the other guy's like, that was so fun. And, and the boat driver goes, enough power for you? Like, I feel like I insulted him, and he took it out on me. We all need power. We need power. If we want to live for Jesus Christ, if we really want to be committed followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot do it on our own. We need power. So how do we get it? How do we access? Because the power is in the presence of God. So how do we access that? Now, we know from the context of this story that the, the demons, the, the disciples were trying to help this man, and, and they were doing it without praying. They were clueless to their inadequacies. They had no clue how under-equipped they were to try to do what they were doing. And so when you get to verse 14, he says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them arguing, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. This has created this stir and they're all arguing. So Jesus is investigating it. And he's trying to figure out what's going on. Because there's only one person in this whole scene who is admitting his inadequacy. And that's the Father. He's the only one. He's the only one that is admitting, admitting I don't have what it takes to handle this. This suffering and this difficulty is beyond me. You know, in situations like this, it's good for us to try just to use our imagination to think, what would that be like? Some people know what it's like to have a child that's incredibly ill and to have this sense of no hope. It's, 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 it's a difficult thing. I have experienced something like that of hopelessness in a situation that there seems to be no good answer and you, you can imagine the pain. You can imagine the anguish. This is his, his kid. 
And so we have it here in verse 22. He says, he looks at Jesus. He says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, we talked about this last week. I can't go too much into detail, but that word for take pity is a powerful word. It's a powerful word. It's not the word. It's not the word for me seeing someone who's struggling going, man, I feel so bad for you. I'm sorry you're struggling. No, it's the word for someone who's struggling and you just get right in it with them and say, I'm going to struggle alongside with you. I'm going to grieve right with you. I'm in it with you. And he says, oh, what is he saying to Jesus? Jesus, if you can feel, because that word, he says, it has this idea of, a, of, of a, the sense and it comes um, in, in the Greek. It's actually saying, in, uh, he's saying, from your bowels, from the inside of you, where they, they imagined all your emotion was, the inside of you. And he's saying, man, if there's anything in you that feels what I feel, help me. Help me. Right? Take pity on us and help us. And So, Jesus, if you can. Jesus looks at if you can. Which, I'm like, Jesus, so harsh. So harsh. Everything is possible for him who believes. So now Jesus lays it out there, this powerful scene. There's desperation. There's, there's, and you can imagine this dad. He's, he's wavering between hope and despair. You know. I mean, the disciples just tried and they failed. The disciples said, yeah, we'll try. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it failed. It's like, oh, I've seen this before. Hope and desperation. Hope and despair. And he's got this little bit of hope. And Jesus says, if you can Everything is possible for him who believes. Basically, Jesus says, you know, you got to believe. You got to believe. Your faith has to be, sounds like he's saying your faith has to be strong. And then, and then this guy answers, and I, I love this answer. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed. In other words, Jesus said, if you can, every, anything is possible for him who believes. And it's like, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's like he blurts it out. Jesus, he's spl- I, I know the right answer. I do believe. I know that's the right answer. And then he says, help me with my unbelief. He says, I'm struggling still, Jesus. I've been through this cycle before with people. I just went through it with your disciples. I want to believe with all my heart. But in, 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 in the back of me, it's saying, oh, it didn't work last time. I'm not, I'm not all there, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. He's saying, I have doubts. I'm struggling a little bit. I'm trying. You can sense in his answer the desperation of this man. And you know what I love? I love that he doesn't lie. He doesn't lie to God. I think how many times, you know, we we pray what we think is the right thing to pray. And it may not be exactly what we think, but we pray it because it sounds like the right thing to pray. And God going, are you you going to try to lie to me? Do you think I'm like, oh, wow, and I'm fooled? So I love this. He recognizes that. And he says, I'm not going to. So he, he doesn't lie. He admits his weakness. He admits, I'm struggling. And Jesus does not say, well, you go on out and get your faith up to 100% and come back and talk to me and we'll work on this. He didn't. Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have enough faith. And he understands the struggle this man is having with belief. He understands him. And so this gives me... You know, as I look at this, this gives me three principles that we can hold on to. 
that we can grasp as we talk about accessing the presence of God, of, of getting the, the power for change. And here's the first one. Helplessness, helplessness, not holiness, is required for accessing the presence of God. If you admit your inadequacies, God loves that. If you try to fake it, he hates that. Jesus doesn't say to him, no doubt aloud. You must be totally surrendered to be sure of my blessing. This man is admitting, I'm struggling here. I don't have it all together. And Jesus, I can work with that. Jesus is saying, I can work with that. So there's an interesting principle here. If you can stick this in your head, the key is not the quality of your faith. The key is the quality of the object you are putting your faith in. That's the key. Because you can have perfect faith in something that's wrong. And so it's not the quality of your faith. There's faith involved, but it's not the quality of your faith. It's the quality of the object of your faith. That's what's so important. That's what's so important about us. That's why we say read the scriptures. Get to know Jesus more because he's the object of our faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ, the word of God. That's where it's going to come from. So to talk about faith for a moment, I, I just because oftentimes faith is something that people talk about. They're not really sure what they're talking about. It's kind of this thing that's hard to, to always explain. But, but, but all faith, whether it's good or bad faith in the, in the right thing or the wrong, all faith is, is, I would say it's like an informed faith. It's, there's a knowledge, there's a background that, that bolsters it so that you believe something. Because if, if there's no knowledge, if there's n- nothing that you hang on to, then th- you don't have faith. You have to believe something to take action. So all faith has a foundational belief that it works off of. Okay, a a self-reliant man, he believes he can overcome his problems through his abilities. And then he steps forward in faith of his his abilities. You see, That's that's how faith works. An angry woman believes she can get what she wants by yelling. She moves forward by faith. She believes If I get angry, they will bend to my will. And so she moves forward. That's faith in action. It's in the wrong thing, right? Because it's not the quality of your faith. It's it's, it's what your faith is in. A porn addict believes he can be satisfied with the Internet. He moves forward by faith. An insecure person believes I can't overcome my problems. And so she shrinks by faith. An insecure person goes, I can't, ah, and they turn. And they hide, and they withdraw. And then that's them working their faith in what they believe. A lying person believes he can acquire what he wants through deceit. And he acts on that faith. A Christian believes that she will overcome her problems by God's power, so she moves forward on that faith. You see, it's the quality of the object of your faith that's so important. And so for us, what we need to do sometimes is go, what what am I trusting in here? What is my faith in in this situation? If If I'm struggling right now with fear, if I'm struggling right now with depression, if I'm struggling right now, and we can just go on and on and on. I mean, you know, the problem is if I name three, everybody else who has the other ones go, well, he didn't name mine, so I guess I'm not included. No, the problem is whatever it is for you, 
that problem is because you believe something. You have faith in something. And if that problem is dominating you, your faith in something about that problem is greater than your faith in God. It's just that simple. Now, I'm not up here berating you for not having better faith. I'm not going to, you know. Jesus said to him, I'll work with that. And I'm telling you, I struggle too. I struggle too. Sometimes I catch myself, something is bothering me, and I catch myself going, why is that bothering me? What am I trusting here? So it's not, we're all in this together. You can quickly assess your faith by examining how you responded in your last disappointment. Last time something really disappointed you, how did you react? Because nothing will will reveal the object of your faith, what you believe, more than personal disappointment. Maybe even small things. Think about the last time local traffic inconvenienced you. Ruh-roh. That's trouble for me, right? Or the last time your child disappointed you. What came out of your mouth? Your words provide evidence of your faith. Jesus, this is so interesting. Jesus was never, he, he was never stopped, interrupted. His plan was never sidetracked by the annoyance of other people. His heart, Luke 9, 51, he says, I came to do my Father's will. That's what his heart was fixed on. And people and, 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 and the annoyances of things that people could do to, to put you off track, they didn't control him. And so biblical faith is trusting in someone that no one can take away. Any other kind of faith is trusting in something that you can lose. And that's why, like Paul, he talks about love is patient. We, we, we read this a lot at, at weddings, but this... Here, this goes with this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you know, I find it can be a little sneaky for us sometimes as Christians. And we, and we see something that maybe happens to a Christian and we're like, oh, that's terrible. And we see the same thing happen to someone who is not of the Christian faith, and it doesn't bother us as much. And Paul says here, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love doesn't get any satisfaction out of wrongdoing, out of doing evil. It doesn't matter who the object of the evil is. Love gets no satisfaction out of it, gets no joy out of it. We, we have to be careful, and I say that because that, I see that in myself. So that's the first one. Helplessness, not holiness, is required for ex- accessing the presence of God. Number two, you have to bring Jesus your most precious things, even if it looks like he might make them worse. All right? You look at the story. Look at this parent. Your child is suffering. Your child is struggling. Anyone that's had a child and seen them struggle, it sucks the oxygen right out of your life. It dominates you. And he's putting his most precious possession in Jesus' hand. And look what happens. The spirit shrieked convulsive and violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's, he's dead. And for one horrifying instant, That man looks at his son and thinks, this is worse than what I wanted. This is worse than what I expected. This is not what I was asking for. Now, in this passage, we see in an instant what Jesus is doing. He immediately reaches down. But 
Sometimes in our lives, it takes time. Just like for some of us, it took time in our coming to Christ. Sometimes in our lives, these things take time. And at first glance, at first blush, it doesn't look like the right thing's happening. It doesn't look like a good thing is happening. And from this passage, though, we know God is in control. He's working. We have to trust him. We have to trust him. And so, why is it most important to give God our most precious things? Because they're they're the things that our life can revolve around. And we have to be very, very close, very careful with that. We all have needs. We we need to be loved. We all would love, we, we, we need family. We want to accomplish things. Those are normal things. And it's great to have a wonderful family. It's great to have a deep relationship with another person. It's great to do well at your job. It's, a, it's great to achieve something and make a difference in this world. But if that becomes the basis of convincing you that yourself that you are somebody, you're in an incredibly dangerous place. You're trying to get your own glory. Scripture tells us that we are glory grabbers. We've lost it at the garden and we're trying to get it back. And God says that in Jesus Christ, he gives us in our salvation this glory that was his. Why? Because in Philippians 2, it says Jesus, thinking equality with God was not something to be grabbed and held onto. He gave it for us so that we don't have to be glory grabbers Because if these things, family or relationships or jobs, the list goes on and on, you know this stuff. If they are the ultimate source of your significance, then when things go wrong, and things will go wrong, when these things are threatened or even taken away, you you won't be sad. It'd be fine to be sad, but you'll be devastated. Your your life will feel like it has no meaning. You You won't just weep. You won't just hurt. You'll be despondent and hopeless and you'll experience meaninglessness. And God says, that is not something any of my children should ever experience because your life is never meaningless. Nothing in your life is ever meaningless. And then what happens is, as we begin to have this, not this, this intellectual faith, but it goes deeper, it becomes something that we hold on to, it becomes experiential. Because Jesus then isn't just somebody that I think is important. Occasionally, I experience him. Occasionally, the the relationship, there's something that happens there. And I sense him working in my life. And when we trust him with our most precious things, then he changes us. And then we go through tough times, and sometimes we become more gracious, more empathetic, rather than hard and bitter. So helplessness, not hopeless, helplessness, not holiness is required for accessing the presence of God. You have to bring Jesus your most important things, even if it looks like it, he might make them worse. The third, see Jesus and listen to his words of love. And, and I, I kind of put that in there. I, what am I saying? Earlier in this chapter, Jesus is there, Moses is there, Elijah is there, and a cloud appeared and the sun came. And of course, they're there, and Peter starts yakking, right? Peter just starts, blah, 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 blah. And so God smacks him, basically. A voice came, said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Peter, shut up. That's the nice way God says, shut up. He says, listen to him. But he's saying the same thing there. He says, listen to my son. Listen to my son. 
And the disciples saw Jesus enveloped and clothed in the love and glory of God. In Romans 8.16, it says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are his children. We are God's children. We talked about this. We went In the book of 1 John, we talked about this two-step authenticator that God has. First is the Word of God. The Word of God is not subjective. It's objective. Anything gets measured by the Word of God. Subjective is the Spirit working in our lives. Oftentimes, truth is revealed through the Spirit working in our lives. Always in concert with the Word of God. But it's a two-step authentication that happens for us for truth. And the Spirit uses the Word of God to impact our lives. And there will be times when the Spirit will whisper to you, you are my daughter, you are my son. I love you. I would go to infinite lengths to get you, to keep you, and I have done that. And so this idea of see Jesus, they saw Jesus coming down the mountain. And then later they saw him on the cross. And when we begin to see Jesus, the real Jesus, the truth, from there to there and everything in between, everything that he's done for me, there will be times when you will sense his presence in your life and see him working in your life. Maybe not every day, maybe not as often as you wish. But he will begin changing you that way from the inside out. And so the first idea is admit your helplessness, just like that man did. So the second idea is you bring him your most precious things. The third idea is you see Jesus doing all this for me and whispering, I love you. And then you can go to him confident that he will do what is right and confident that he works in love in your life. And you can go to him with your most precious things. And you can lay them before him. Say, God, I trust you. I trust you with my children. I trust you with my life. I trust that you are doing good things because you're a good God. And even if I don't see it right now, I trust you. You can take him your greatest fears and struggles. And you know that he is working because anything is possible when God is involved. Anything is possible when God is involved. And so as we leave this place, God says, I want you to be these kind of people. I want you to be the kind of person that is welcoming to everyone, that loves everyone. I want you to be the kind of person that freely admits their imperfections. Nobody is perfect. And I want you to be the kind of person that comes to me with everything because you believe that anything is possible when God is involved. Because it is. It is for that man and it is for us. As we lay these before him. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. God, you know there's some things we may be going, no, this won't change. This will never change. And Lord, I know that man was thinking the same thing. And so, Lord, we pray. We, we, we would love to see you change our lives. We'd love to see you work and change us radically from the inside out. And, God, we'd love to see it happen with a snap, but we know it doesn't always work that way. And so we trust you because we know through the waiting our faith is often strengthened and we become more gentle and sweeter and sympathetic and empathetic. Lord, help us. Help us to see you at work, God. Encourage us through the difficulties. 
And then, Lord, we will be quick to give you the thanks when you work and, and when you glorify yourself. That's what we want. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. Again, if you're a guest here, please don't feel pressured to give. This is what our regular attenders and our members do as a part of their worship.